This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtCloud. ArtCloud's comprehensive management and marketing tools help galleries compete in the digital age. With limited resources, galleries often struggle to maintain their online presence, but ArtCloud solves this problem and actually empowers galleries to build and maintain robust digital marketing routines. Whether we're talking about email marketing or integrated websites, ArtCloud's all-in-one platform gives you the tools you need to grow your business. For example, when you input new inventory, ArtCloud makes it easy to send out a beautiful new rival email to all of its followers of that artist. A 2019 study showed that the average gallery that upgraded to ArtCloud increased their sales 30% within the first six months. That's incredible, 30%. To learn more and receive a free demo, visit artcloud.com slash four galleries. That's A-R-T-C-L-D dot com slash F-O-R-G-A-L-L-E-R-I-E-S. Or you can email support at artcloud.com. That's support at A-R-T-C-L-D dot com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. Last week felt like a marathon with auction after auction after auction. We finally made it to the finish line. There were some really interesting results in the auctions and the evening sales. Some some lots flew and did incredibly well. We saw a lot of auction records. And then we also saw some softer results, some works buying in, so a lot of works selling on one or two bids. Um... So mixed reviews in the evening sales. I think in the day sales, it's almost more interesting to me because it's really where a lot of the art market's participating. There aren't too many collectors at the end of the day buying in the evening sales, but there's a lot more in the day sales. And look, the day sales, these younger artists performed exceptionally well yet again for another auction season. I hear whispers from people, how long can this go on? Is it sustainable? Uh, it feels like it's... You know, it isn't healthy to get these strong of auction results for artists this early in their careers, but um, we are where we are. The market's strong, and we dig in in this week's episode with Kelly Crow, art market reporter for the Wall Street Journal, on all of these topics as she helps us break down the auction results. Kelly's always a great uh, guest on the podcast as she has a lot of insights and a lot of great sources, and if you don't read her articles in the Wall Street Journal, I definitely recommend you do. So hope you enjoyed the episode chatting with Kelly Crow about last week's post-war contemporary auctions in New York. Kelly, thanks so much for chatting with us. You're welcome. Before we dig into the auction results, I wanted to ask you about the week leading up to the sales. There was a lot of attention on the fact that there weren't a lot of trophy pieces this season. Do you think we can read something into this about collector sentiments and maybe sellers having hesitancy about selling in this environment? Or does it have to do with the fact that there just weren't estates this season and as a result we didn't get a lot of trophy pieces from estates? Or maybe it's a combination of both. You know, I think the answer is probably a blend because there were no Rockefeller level behemoth, you know, estates this year. That's just, you know, the function of life. But um, there is a sense of sellers um, having some resistance, as the auction houses call it. But basically, you know, they were a little bit less confident putting their big pieces in with big prices into these sales. I mean, this is a drumbeat that we've followed for the last couple of years where we've seen. 
you know, the really priciest pieces, um, having some thin bidding and needing guarantees or financial mechanisms to sort of get them over the finish line. And so, you know, if you are a collector who has something really extraordinary like that, you really don't necessarily want to put it into a marketplace where it's going to be a tough sell, right? I mean, the whole idea, especially, you know, you would sell that privately. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're worried about it selling, I think you would sell it privately. If you feel like it's going to spark a, a bidding frenzy and you're going to get more than you ask for, then you put it up at auction. So, um, you know, I feel like there's a corollary to the housing market there. If, you know, if it's a, a, a season where everything's selling like hotcakes, well, then you put your house on the market. But if you, you're getting the sense that neighbors around the block are having a hard time selling, well, you, then you don't. So I, I get the sense heading into these sales that that was a little bit the mood. And so after the auctions, you wrote a great recap piece in the Wall Street Journal, and the headline actually referenced some bargain shopping that happened during the sales, which, you know, it's interesting. I think given the strength of the market and just all of the participants really from so many different parts of the world uh, bidding at auction, it kind of feels like sometimes that it's really hard to get a bargain in the auctions. Um, Who are some of the artists that sold at or below low estimate where you could argue maybe someone did come away with a bargain? The bargain is sort of in air quotes a little bit, right? Because uh-huh. you're still spending millions and millions of dollars right. on these things. But everyone knows when the market is frothy, right, that you're paying a premium because you're having to overpay uh, for things. So in this round, you know, 43 works across Sotheby's and Christie's um, combined evening sales of Impressionists and Modern Art sold for below their asking prices, right? So if you consider that a bargain, and in some cases they were, you know, um, selling for maybe as almost half what they were, you know, a little bit, a little bit um, over half than what they were selling. There was a Juan Miro that Phillips had at this um, that was estimated at seven million, and it wound up selling for three point eight million with the hammer, or I guess you know four and a half with fees. Sotheby's had a Picasso nude that was you know uh, sold you know for. They wanted at least 12 for it, and it, they ended up getting like $9.9 million. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. Is a $9 million Picasso considered a bargain? It is if, it, if they want 12 you know. So I, somebody on Twitter asked me, they're like, are these really bargains? And I said, well, you know, getting half estimate is better than getting – you know, estimate and a half, you know, so you can register whether that, but I remember Eli Broad once telling me that this mood in the marketplace is exactly when he would love to dive in because he said, if you're a collector who's done your homework and you know, these artists and you know, these price levels, finally, they're getting down to a place where it feels like what an auction should be, which is a potential to get a deal, right? Like that's the whole shtick of an auction house is that you're not going to be paying a retail price that you're allowed to sort of let the market shake out what the real price should be. And so for a lot of collectors, I think if they had the courage to look through, there was still some good stuff um, and you could get it for less than, uh, than you probably could have gotten it, you know, a few years back. Um, So that's, that's that's where we're at with the with the bargain idea. And at the same time, we saw several auction records, many for an older generation of African American artists. And it really seems like collectors and museums are simultaneously reevaluating the importance of several overlooked artists, and that's being reflected in museum shows and acquisitions, as well as prices at auction. 
Yeah, I mean, I saw at least records were set for like 28 artists across the sale, which is a great, I mean, that's a great show of confidence at these price levels, sort of, you know, below $15 million. You saw a lot of rejiggering of people kind of reassessing uh, where the high points should be. You know, Ruth Asawa, Carrie Mae Weems, Julie Curtis, Tamara DeLimpica. I mean, that was the great, this 1927 piece of this like minxy lady, you know, with a red nighty on the couch. Of course, I don't know why that's, you know, uh, why would that sell for a record price? No, um, but it's uh, it sold for thirteen point four, which was over its eight million dollar high estimate. So you've got them selling. The story of the African American sort of dovetails with that. Um, it's sort of part of that rise, but then it's also its own story. So you really are seeing um, collectors try to figure out where those things should go. Norman Lewis, you know, did really well. Charles White did really well at 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 uh, Sotheby's selling for, you know, like $1.8 million for this piece called You Shall Inherit the Earth, which was over its 700 estimate. But then the night before, um, they had another piece um, from the 70s that um, – like sold on a single bid for 1.2. Alma Thomas, amazing artist, you know, Obama put her in the White House and she's got, you know, amazing stuff. Um, but her piece again sold at Christie's uh, following a single bid for, for 2.6. So to me, I just feel like you're seeing some volatility while museums and collectors try to figure out where the price levels will be. But the bigger story of do they belong in the canon, do they belong in museums is a, is a hard yes, right? So again, if I were a collector really trying to think hard about where artists are headed, like who to support, I would be definitely taking a look at that canon of, of artists um, who were overlooked for many years. Um, you know, the Sam Gilliams of the world, you're going to be paying Rothko prices for them at some point, probably, um, at least their best work. So we might as well, you know, get it for under a million now. Um, I think that's the thinking uh, for a lot of these collectors. I want to focus on the day sale as well because this is really where the majority of the art market operates, and that's indicated from the fact that there's so many more lots in the day sales than in evening sales. What are you hearing about the strong prices for some of these young artists? Is there concern about bubbles and also concern about what these very quick spikes in prices can do to an artist's long-term career? Yeah, it's hard because you know, what we're not hearing about these days are like Jacob Kasai or Dan Colin or, you know, I mean, the artists that were sort of on everyone's wish list a few years ago as the young hot thing are, are, um, <laughs> are not. So, you know, you take your risk when you back a, back a kid basically who's untested, right? That's scary. But, on the other hand, like what else are you going to get a shot? So like Julie Curtis and some of these young kids who travel all herself is really on the rise. She's going crazy right now. Um, the, the the test is do you survive it um, like Adrian Genny appears to be surviving it or do you end up with this roller coaster like an older artist like Christopher Wool, I mean, he's sort of all over the place. People are still trying to figure out <laughs> where to price all this stuff. There's still a lot of volatility there. But – you know, the market, the auction houses are now in a, in a market-making mode. That's what they're, you know, that's what they intend to try to do. So, you know, if you missed the one show in the gallery of this artist that now everyone wants, you're really, your best shot is to try to get it privately. So I, I feel like Cause is an artist to keep an eye on. I feel like he's, he's battling a bubble right now. Um, I feel like... Um, 
some of the young African-American artists um, feel like, like Njideka Crosby and others who have had such a huge run-up, um, their galleries need to do a really good job of trying to tighten that um, trying trying to tighten that market but on the other hand I'm like you know I, I feel like the market will do what it's going to do so if you if the art is good enough I feel like it will survive but I know a lot of the young artists are, are, are paranoid right about getting you know churned through and spit out I mean that's this is the nature of this beast um, and I have a lot of empathy for them but I'm also like you could have been an accountant like you're choosing to make your life in art art is a blood sport when it comes to the secondary market like you've got to survive that reckoning and then move through it and and you will if your if your work is good and if you have a good gallery supporting you you will move through it um you just kind of have to get through the the scrum of the piranha pit really early on you know we'll see if who makes it yeah, you have one artwork come to auction by an artist and it does well and that tempts other owners of that artist's work to sell theirs and it just can become a domino effect at that point. And I think a lot of it has to do with how prolific the artist was at the beginning of their career and also what galleries were they working with, um, who were the work sold to. Look, I mean, when an artist is early on in their career, their work isn't really considered investment quality. The work may be sold to a lower caliber collector or someone who, what they paid for it and what it could sell for at auction, now that's life-changing money. And then if an artist who's in demand graduates to a higher caliber gallery, then they're selling to collectors that are more wealthy, that have more valuable collections, and it isn't really worth it for them to them to flip it you know, and make a few hundred thousand dollars. That isn't worth damaging relationships. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to an artist um, and their partner at um, a dinner last week in New York, and they were just discussing about how fortunate they felt that earlier in their career they were able to graduate to a higher caliber gallery. So there really isn't that much uh, of the artist's work on the resale market. It's true. Well, and, you know, I mean, there are some, like, like everyone wants a Nicholas party right now, right? And that he has a look that is, you know... Um, um, instantly identifiable, Julie Curtis, instantly identifiable. So when you have the signature look that you've locked in, everyone can recognize you. My my fear really is that the artist feels like they have the freedom to change their mind and to re-up in different ways, right? Like you don't want to feel stagnant by sort of locking in a look that everyone wants and then feel hemmed in by that. So that's where you really need a gallery that encourages them to mix it up if they feel like they need to so they don't feel like they're beholden to the market. They're not. They're artists. You do your thing, and hopefully the market will, will follow you. I, I Derek Forjore is an artist that I like keeping an eye on because he's older. He does have a well-packaged story, and the art is really, I think, holds up. And, um, you know, we were seeing a ton of him at, at fairs and the like. I think this time there was not quite so much. There was one piece at Phillips that sold overestimate. But I don't know. I just I feel like... It's really up to everyone to sort of decide how high they want to push these up. And if they want to push them to Icarus levels, then they either need to support it or watch the crash and burn. But um, that's such a collective, a collective idea that it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to make a call in one week of auctions, you know, whether or not someone's crashed or made it. 
And there's been a lot of talk on my end about what the explanation is for why some of these hot younger artists are doing so well at auction. And something I keep hearing, although it's unsubstantiated, is Asia's participation in the market. Basically, Asian collectors are interested in these artists, and their participation, along with U.S. and European-based clients, has driven up uh, the market for several of these artists. Are you hearing this as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to keep an, an eye on Asia. I really feel like, um, and the impressionist and modern sales, they were largely absent. They they took home more than two dozen of the priciest pieces in Christie's and Sotheby's uh, evening sales of impressionist art last year. That's a lot of like basically trophies to take home this year. I mean, I didn't really count more than three. There may have been some, but I mean, the the biggest piece that I see they got in that category was like a sixteen point two million dollar. Paul Sinyak. So, I mean, that to me is, I don't know if it's a generational shift or not, um, but they really felt absent. But then I do feel like they showed up in the contemporary arena um, and they're buying artists which I love that I don't really see them going after. So um, I feel like their collections continue to mature and um, develop sort of in step. Uh, I mean, a Hong Kong online bidder broke the record for Sean Scully at Phillips by bidding online uh, for this sort of uh, piece called Red Bar, which ended up selling for 1.8. Um, in that same sale, a different Hong Kong bidder, like, one, the Chabalala sell for like $275,000. So that's, again, like I didn't know they were interested in African-American artists or even in her work. And so that's really fun um, to see them sort of, you know, branching out, if you will. Um, I did talk to Christie's after the sales and I asked them about what he thought was, you know, Guillaume Cerruti, the CEO, asked him what he thought was going on. And he said there may be a generational shift in risk appetite between the older, more conservative, you know, collectors from Taiwan and mainland China who were typically drawn to the Picassos and the Muros and whatever. They might have just sat it out this round. But the younger, you know, uh, more adventurous collectors still wanted to fight for, um, you know, for, for things. So I feel like that's a story that still has some legs because um, everyone, I think, is trying to pay attention to what's happening in Hong Kong. It's a really scary sort of the unrest that's happening there is uh, really volatile. And um, I'm not sure if um, that will, in the long run, impact Hong Kong's role as an art hub over there. But I, but I know that the appetite still remains really strong for artists and, you know, for, for collectors in uh in Singapore and Indonesia, sort of within the region, right? There's a lot of strength that's been built up. So I would definitely never count Asia out as a force in this market. Um, and I feel like they're learning. They continue to learn and grow those collections. So the the, the big X factor will be, you know, uh, what happens to our Basel Hong Kong and things sort of in the short term, right? Um, but uh, so far, you know, I'm I'm told that the fair is, still scheduled and not canceled and going forward. And Christie's has some big sales this coming week in Hong Kong. So well, there's a lot more sort of tea leaves that I need to read on uh, on Asia uh, before we make another decision. But certainly they're present. They're there. And I wanted to switch gears for a minute and ask you about your latest article in the Wall Street Journal about the famed collector Donald Bryant, who's fallen ill. And the article really touches on what's happened the past few years and a lot of family conflict and there's also a component of it regarding art financing that has resulted in a lot of debt. Um, for our listeners who haven't read the article yet, I definitely recommend they do. But uh, for those that haven't, if you could just share in one or two minutes um, 
what's happened to Donald Bryant and his family. I think it's a really unfortunate story. So I knew Don Bryant for years. He was a real fixture at the auction houses. He'd sit up in the first couple of rows, and he bought really well. He managed both his collection and sort of art-related risk, I think, better than anyone. He and Ronald Lauder were really the first out of the gates to sort of do some of these tax-savvy um, art exchanges. They would um, collateralize their collections. They would, you know, um, borrow against their collection, the value of their collections um, in order to free up cash, which they would either then use to buy more art or, you know, pay for other things, and then they would pay down the sums pretty regularly. Anyway, the basic thing is he was kind of a boss at it. The one thing I think he wasn't planning on getting was Alzheimer's. And so, even though um, he's uh, no longer now able to sort of weigh in on uh, matters, his third wife, Bettina Bryant, is now having to sort of um, pay down these loans that, that he took out and that they signed off on. Um, I think it's a, about a $90 million loan right now, which which equates to like $300,000 a month that she's having to pay off. So um, she's, you know, she is sort of selling some real estate and selling some minor things. Um, she's not really wanting to uh, break up the collection or sell it all off. She was trying to keep it intact, and I think that's the, the issue. Um, she also made a decision last year to move him from St. Louis, where he was his hometown, out to California to their Napa Valley winery. And that decision, which she said was for the good of his health, um, removed him from a lot of, you know, being close to a lot of friends and family. And that sort of sparked a, a bit of a feud between his three grown children from an earlier marriage who now feel like she whisked him away, you know. Um, and the I feel like there's a lot brewing there. Um, there was also a lawsuit that was filed by a former employee earlier this year alleging that she had worked on renegotiating this art loan, um, saw some fuzzy math that did not equate, um, tried to call Bettina on it, and instead of Bettina sort of you know, fixing the financial snapshot to send to the banks, the, uh, the Bryants and the Bryant Trust have fired uh, this employee. And so um, now they've, that, that suit's sort of moving its way through, through the courts. So, so basically it's a hot mess. It's a little bit of an episode of Falcon Grass or Succession or whatever you have all thrown in. But the, the ultimate truth is that it's a sad story because it's, an, it's a great collection um, and a lot of people – have a stake uh, and where it goes. He's given 16 pieces to MoMA, 16 pieces to St. Louis, uh, St. Louis Art Museum. So a major guy left a big, cut a big swath through uh, St. Louis Society and New York Society, and now you know the denouement is, uh, is is a little bit more tragic. Yeah, really unfortunate situation, but a great article, and we definitely recommend our listeners check it out. Kelly, thanks so much again for coming onto the podcast. We always appreciate hearing your insights and perspectives on the art market, especially the week after the major contemporary auctions. And when you're not writing in the Wall Street Journal, you're often tweeting and posting about the art market. So our listeners should be following you on social media if they aren't already. Where can they find you on Instagram and Twitter? Yeah, I'm just at Kelly Crow WSJ on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm always, um, always updating. So uh, stay tuned. We definitely will. Thanks again, Kelly. Thanks. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast was brought to you by ArtCloud. ArtCloud's comprehensive management and marketing tools help galleries compete in the digital age, which is so important. With limited resources, galleries often struggle to maintain their online presence. But ArtCloud solves this problem and actually empowers galleries to build and maintain robust digital marketing routines. Whether we're talking about email marketing or integrated websites, ArtCloud's all-in-one platform 
gives you the tools you need to grow your business. For example, when you input new inventory, ArcCloud actually makes it easy to send out a beautiful new arrival email to all of the followers of that artist. A 2019 study showed that the average gallery that upgraded to ArcCloud increased their sales 30% within the first six months. Hold on, that's incredible. I have to repeat that again. Average gallery that upgraded to ArcCloud increased their sales 30% within the first six months. To learn more and receive a free demo, visit artcloud.com slash four galleries. That's A-R-T-C-L-D dot com slash F-O-R-G-A-L-L-E-R-I-S. Or you can email support at artcloud.com. That's at A-R-T-C-L-D dot com.